Welcome to 50% with Marcel Combs, my good friend and mentor. I'm DeAntha Gratton, and on this podcast, she will travel a journey of leadership with each guest as she analyzes the ingredients that lead women to their current role. Marcel's goal is for you to walk away with tools to support your very own journey, no matter where your current destination is today. Okay. Hi, DeAntha. Hey, Marcel. <laughs> Hi. What you been doing? Well, you know, this and that. Yeah. <laughs> talking a lot of that, to people. Talking to people, my be- who knew that that was my real talent. I'm telling you, we have talked to some really oh. good people. We yeah. do. And today we have actually a young woman who went to college or university with my son, my oldest son. Yeah. And and Jeremy stayed his last year. He said he did his fifth year and he was an assistant coach for the girls <laughs> soccer team. Do her kids does his kids know that? I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Should we tell them? I don't know. They his kids are little, yeah. little bitty. Yeah. But uh, this young woman has lived a long life in just her short life. She mm-hmm. has her PhD and she's taught and now and worked a lot in, in the areas we've worked in. Yeah, kind of close to home with all that. Yeah, yeah, with the ALFs and has done a lot on aging. I love it that she talks about um, setting goals for individuals who are older yes, and what mm-hmm. what do they want their life to look like for the next five years. So isn't that a wonderful way to approach yes. people who are older? Because yes, we kind of forget so that. We forget that. You know, uh, with hospice and end of life, that's a big thing. They want them to set goals yeah. for that end of life. Yeah. yeah. Keep growing. And it's it's crazy. My goal is to keep being able to get up out of the chair, right? <laughs> well, that's the first thing. And then go to yoga. There you go. Downward dog. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yoga and And, and then we get a happy baby. There you go. We didn't even tell Sarah that. No. But I no. think they'll I think think the audience will really enjoy Sarah today. And so let's go to her. Okay. Uh good morning, Sarah. So nice to have you on fifty percent with Marcel Combs. Good morning. Nice to be here with you. Thank you. Good morning. I I know you um you actually went to the university that my son went to and played soccer and as you said um hung out with him the whole time so we kind of go way back. We do. You know, all it's amazing how small the world is. The bigger it gets, it's interesting how you still have commonality so many places. Do you know that's so funny? I I think that too just as having traveled a lot and then been working in uh, the home health and hospice space for so many years. I used to marvel of people who went to national conferences and they would know people. And I would think, how in the world do you know them from all over the U.S.? And then then you find yourself there because um, we're creatures of relationships, I think. So we seek out those relationships. We do. It is. I've spent so many times and days at conferences and it is not clickish in a bad way, but we are, I think it goes, we are social creatures. And I see that so much, you know, kind of working in the aging services, how important relationships are regardless of age. Right. And they have to be nurtured and cultivated. And sometimes you have to seek them out. Yes, absolutely. My, my goal in life is to have my my ALF with only the friends I have. Because imagine <laughs> just going to an ALF 
and you don't know anyone that, you know, even if you're irritated with your friends sometimes, at least you would like love them and like them when you went in versus being irritated and you you don't even know them. So, you know, I I usually start out with getting the person to kind of tell us about their journey and about where you, wherever you want to start on that journey, uh, who kind of made you or what made you um, who you are today. So you want to just start out, Sarah, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. I think the best way to answer that question is as you start off, from college and you think what you want to do and what you want to be, right? We dream of things when we're young and rarely do we become what we think of when we're younger. Um, But in this, I think, naive 20-year-old state, we look at ourselves and say, I'm going to do this. And to me, that's plan A, B, and C. And I think, you know, fast forward 25 years, I'm 44 now, I feel like I'm on plan T or you. <laughs> um, and I still feel like, you know, it may be going through the alphabet a, a second time, but how it started out is I loved school always and I loved college. And so I just stayed and I wanted to be a professor <laughs> and that was my goal. And through that, I started working odd jobs here and there. I got into career counseling and education. I started adjunct teaching kind of on that path to become a professor And then I decided I was done with higher ed and I I wanted to do something more. Um, So I fell into, which most people talk about in aging services, I fell into senior living. Um, I had always had an affinity for older people and I did my graduate work and internships in therapeutic rehab or um, city senior programming. And then I started working for a large skilled nursing and assisted living operator out of Dallas called Senior Care Centers. And I took all of that background of exercise science and kinesiology and decided that I didn't want to be, per se, a researcher at higher ed and academia, but I wanted to take that knowledge and look at how I could impact older lives and adults from a, from a wellness perspective. Um, not therapy, but just if you keep moving and if there's quality of life and aspiration and purpose, um, what that can do for longevity and vitality. Uh, So I I thought for sure that I would make my way up through large corporate operators who owned and operated senior living. And I did that for, you know, seven years, eight years. And then in the line of my work from a programming and lifestyle, I had my job eliminated twice from large operators. Um, We we but we need to put your salary elsewhere. (laughs) And I had dabbled in starting my own company in Dallas before I relocated to Florida with a larger operator holiday retirement. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back and try it. I had built a lot more connections and I started to realize in so many conversations I was having that I, I was giving away advice and ideas and strategy for free out of the goodness of my heart because I wanted to use some of these solutions or products. And I thought if I told you how to make them better, um, I could then find a reason to spend money on them and it would work better. So I discovered and fell into this idea of entrepreneurship and what I call life tech and programming lifestyle services just by way of conversations. Um, And now I'm three years in to having my own business. 
and working internationally with all different types of customers and clients. And I love it, but I never, ever expected to say that I was an entrepreneur or would start a business. Um, <laughs> not something I grew up with. I didn't have people in my life that you know started from that background that you sometimes emulate. So here I am and just trying to you know, figure it out. So, so what, what kind of programs do you take in and do Sarah? So on, we'll start with the owner operator side. And if you think of traditional senior living, you have owners and operators that run all of these different communities, whether that's starting at active adult 55 plus all through the continuum of care through end of life healthcare. And what traditionally we see or stereotypically is an offering that is a monthly calendar. We have five to six activities or offerings a day that range from socialization to, I'll just say it, arts, crafts, games, um, bingo. And traditionally that has been what senior living looks like. And the more and more we start to understand really who the person is, we can start to look at more individualistic programming um, where we, you know, ask you, do you have a plan when you wake up for the day, right? What is something you want to do in the next six months? In retirement living, we always look towards the past and what someone or who someone was in their life. We don't focus very much on who they want to continue to be or become regardless of, um, you know, mental or physical function level. Um, there is so much life <clears throat> that is waiting to be lived. Um, we also are surrounded by skill sets and passion and experiences and knowledge that, you know, as people running communities from 30 to 65 can hardly touch in terms of problem solving and business acumen and solutions. So really trying to First, set this foundation of who is in this community. How do we get to know them more? How do we start asking the right questions? And then how do we deliver programs that are not so generic or one size fits all? For instance, if you wanted to have an artistic expression offering. Traditionally, you would say, you know, we're going to have this painting class. We will all use this size canvas. These are the brushes. These are the colors. Here's what we're painting. Kind of like a sip and paint, right? We're all doing the same thing. When you start to look at individualized programming, you can say, here is the studio. Here's all the different mediums that you can use. For the next hour, you have autonomy and selection of how you want to be creative. That could be abstract art. That could be pottery. That could be jewelry. And so you give people all these options instead of trying to force them into a operationally more efficient program standard. Um, the same way is true if you think of exercise. If you just have one exercise class for a cohort, you know, you look at assisted living or independent living, you can have people there that are 60 to 95 years old. Huh. What, what I love about, um, love and hate, I would say about senior living is the older adult in mainstream gets put into one category. Huh. And, and that can be five decades right? 55 to 105 or 65 to 105. So 40 to 50 years. And we market to a demographic in such a 
generic state. If you look at the first half of life from a marketing and research side, you would never put someone two to 52 in one bucket and say, this is what we need to offer. And so it's really looking at levels of programs and offering and meeting whatever the functionality is and trying to repel that. So that's, that's one side within the senior living communities. We also look at what is the strategy, right? So if I'm doing all these things, what is my why? And trying to coach and teach people running these programs that there needs to be a larger strategic initiative. There needs to be an annual plan. There needs to be an approach. We need to have metrics to say if what we're doing is it effective and how do I know that, mm-hmm. all right? But it seems quite subjective if you just ask people, you know, do you enjoy living here? Right? <laughs> yeah. And they could enjoy it for a hundred different reasons, a hundred different people. So trying to put really some some research metrics and some data behind that um, that do show more than just a net promoter score or a satisfaction. Um, on the other side, as in every industry, there is a slew of innovative solutions that are being created or enhanced, whatever that may be. They don't have to be tech, but it's around processes and solutions. In the age tech world right now, it happens to be highly focused on technology, whether that is apps, websites, um, devices, channels that you can watch, groups that you can join, tech help that you can get through AARP or different national outlets. And so that also spills into going back. If I want to offer individualized programming, what would be a music therapy or an exercise therapy or something that would be a device? What are we doing for hearing? What are we doing for sight? How is VR coming into play? And so there's a lot of technology that is trying to make residents, make older people's lives um, as easy as possible to accessibility and connectivity. So I work with those companies that often think they have a product for the aging services space and then help them understand a little bit of, you may have the best product, but if, if you don't have adoption, if you don't have a why, if you don't have a story, um, it's difficult to sell and And margins are not as big as people think they are. Just because older people live in some really, really fancy communities, um, the ownership level and the REITs and how all that works, there's there's tight margins there and there's a lean labor model. Uh You know, as you probably know, Sarah, I've spent my life working in um, home care and hospice. So I've, you know, from the time that I was, um, your age, really, up till now. That's that's been my space. So some of the things that you have to say are really interesting, and perhaps one of them, you know, if I'm ever in a group with a, a bunch of other people and they are going around doing, you know, where do you see yourself in ten years? The the thing that always comes to my mind is alive. That's <laughs> You know, where where the real truth is, something you said really struck me is uh, not only are we, we're really reaching people 60 to, or maybe even 55 to, you know, 98 these days, you know, lots of people are living to be 100 and living to be 100 in a 
pretty good state. Um, so what, you know, what, what are their goals where before it was just to try to stay independent, but I wonder if you don't give people more hope if you say, who would you like to be over the next five years? Um, or what, what does that look like? So they have a goal, um, a reason to get out of the chair. Exactly. And that can be something as simple as, I mean, we see it in more life events, but I want to go to my grandkids' soccer game, right? I want to be able to attend a great grandkids' graduation. And it can even be, I, I want to be able to walk there or be able to get in and out of a car by myself. And so there's these practical goals that when we start to lose that independence, life becomes so small. Like what we're able to experience becomes small. Even if you know, not being able to get up and walk where you want to go. We talk about this all the time, but why is exercise so important? You may be completely independent, but if you cannot, from a mobility standpoint, rise up from a chair in a safe manner and get to where you want to go, your independence is jeopardized because you're dependent upon, you know, a staff member to assist you from something as simple as a a seated position. and those things aren't talked about as enough and they don't have to be, you know, the trajectory of aging is not just decline. I mean, there's so many ways that we can maintain. Yes. Do things get more difficult? Absolutely. But it's the same way, you know, with dementia or cognitive impairment, that is not, age is not a recipe for decline. Uh-huh. Right? And so teaching people to understand that you, that you do have power and you do have resolve to change the course of what that looks like. You know, you, you can't stay 30 forever, but you can do things that provide you the life that you hope and want to, to enjoy, right? Just a life that brings you joy, regardless of age. Right. That's, you know, fabulous. Also interesting. Um, I think a lot of people looking at the boomers all moving uh, toward the end of that huge generation that, you know, we think there's a lot of money there and there is, you know, money there, but you've got to give them something that is worthwhile and that they're willing to pay money for that has real results. Absolutely. Value is a huge thing. And, you know, the, the disparity between the who has money and who doesn't, I think that gap is getting bigger, which poses an even more interesting scenario. Uh, but oh. this is very, my mother is 72, almost 72, and she has a, a cohort, I'll call them, but, you know, 10 women. And <laughs> they are savvy and they they have money to spend, but you have to make it worth their while, right? Exactly. And, and it's not just about stuff anymore. I think that's what I'm learning. If if you look at wisdom, people don't want stuff; they want experiences. Uh, you know that. Yeah. Well, certainly that's me. I'm about to go to Tahiti, um, and <laughs> I was thinking, uh, of course, just just it's been on my bucket list to get there. It's a long way from Texas. Let me just say that, um, but it it's the experiences that really make a difference. And I will say experiences with people you enjoy. Um, So, you know, I have to ask you a crazy question. 
Um, I read about it, and I don't know if you've ever read about this, about a fall program. I'm trying to, just as you were talking about this, I was trying to bring up, it's either from Finland or Switzerland, but it was talking about falls and with older people and people dread falling, so they become more cautious, which in essence has a negative outcome because then they're more likely to fall because they're more careful. Anyway, it's this big circle. But there was this whole study on a group of older people that they were teaching. I always say it, how to tuck and roll. Uh, yeah. They were teaching them how to fall, which which I think with a lot of the programs, we, we need to like start thinking about what is really reality and how can we make that reality better than it already is. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it was quite the, I'll, I'll send you a link if you haven't, uh, quite yeah. an interesting um, study. Yeah, so falls, I and I do have a couple of clients I've worked with and I've studied quite a bit in the fall spectrum. Um, it is this vicious cycle. And, and one of the clients I'm working with right now, they're called Gate Better. And I, when you're talking about this practicality, I love it. The idea that, Walking is good for cardiovascular, right? Oh, walking yeah. wherever we're going can be good. The research behind walking with a purpose is profound. Meaning if I set out to walk to a certain destination and back, I will walk much further than if I just say I'm going to just go walk. Oh, yeah. The other thing we've learned that in order for walking to truly be a mobility preserver, if you will, is that it has to be real life scenario. Meaning if I just go walk on a treadmill and I have my headphones in or I'm watching TV, my body is in complete robot mode, right? My brain cognitively is doing nothing because walking has been a part of my normal daily life for 80 years. And so we have to stress, it's the same way if you think of working out or anything aerobic, for your body to get benefit, either aerobically or physically, right, from a strength building, you have to stress that. You have to stress the muscle, you have to stress the body. Walking has to be done the same way, that you have to put yourself in real life scenarios where you are stepping up and over a curve. You are standing on one foot, whether that's to get into a car. You are navigating different things that are coming at you, just like the grocery store, um, you, the parking lot, look, different surfaces. If we stay on a treadmill and we just walk in a controlled environment, we get really good at walking in a controlled environment. Oh. Right? When we exit off that, that's when we encounter rugs and floor transitions and curbs and rocks and puddles we have to walk around and people coming at us, lights. Um, and so there's just some really cool research about something we've been told for so long, if I just walk, I'll be fine. But we know that's not the case. It has to be real life scenarios of what you're going to face when you get out of that controlled environment. And if we don't practice that, right, you see this so often, if you don't practice those real life scenarios, then people are scared of curbs. And so they will always use a ramp that is, you know, maybe 50 more steps just to not to have to navigate a curb, which instills fear. 
And so if I, I don't want to go to a place where I know there's not something for me to hang on to or to grab a hold of, we get conditioned. And with fear, when we have fear, we don't pick up our feet up as much because we don't believe in our gait or our step. And so we shuffle. And when we shuffle, we get, I mean, it is really interesting. And most people do, you know, a lot of people fall. The incidence of falls as we age because of strength and balance decline um, increases. But again, there are things that we can do way before a fall risk is identified to ensure we preserve that mobility. And then if we're past that, exactly, how do we learn to fall and not put your wrist down and go backwards and all sorts of different things that can be truly catastrophic. Tuck and roll. That's what yeah. you have to get our tuck and roll better. I mean, I've seen exercises where you're down on the ground and you practice getting up. That's a really important one of how, what is a safe way to, if you're in a prone position on the floor, it's difficult to get up if you are in a, any type of compromised physical state. It's, you don't just spring up anymore. Uh, and it's as simple as if you're going to grab something to hold on to, you got to make sure that's a sturdy kind of lever for you to pull up on. It's, it's very similar to raising children and kind of proofing what you know could cause harm. It's, um, you know, as I look toward that finish line, it, you know, one of my goals is to try to stay as mobile as possible, which which can be really funny from, coming from a girl who doesn't like to sweat, um, who raised a whole house full of athletes. Um, so, but it is, you know, it becomes, I was having, I have a friend who's five years older than me. And, you know, my talk with her all the time is it's not about exercise. It's about the ability to stand up. Um, and you can tell me you don't want to exercise, but the, the you do want to get up. You do want to be able to get in the car and go where you want to go. Um, you do want those things. So, you know, it's it's been an interesting journey just to walk, watch her struggle with so many physical things um, and and the choices we make as people. Uh, and how they contribute to that. You know, going back to just being a woman who's an entrepreneur, um, what are they? There's a book called uh, The Accidental Entrepreneur. Uh, so I think when I when I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, I, myself included, I it was never really kind of on my list to conquer the world or to be this big entrepreneur. It just kind of happened. I, I would say it evolved. Um, so um, talk to us a little bit about, it, you know, what the challenges you've had as a female um, being an entrepreneur and, you know, the, maybe, you know, the things that have come easy or the things that have come hard. When I think of entrepreneurship and how people sometimes arrive there, unknowingly or unplanned, I think that what I see, and I try to look at people, entrepreneur begins with some type of idea. 
And if you have an idea and you get tired of waiting on someone to do something with that idea, I love the book, Big Magic. Right? I don't know if you've read it, but it is this idea that ideas are floating in the universe and they attach themselves to people. And <laughs> you have an opportunity in that moment to kind of take it to fruition or pass it along. And they talk about that interesting or phenomenon where it's like, oh my gosh, I swear I was going to write that book. Like I had that exact movie planned out. I was going to create that. Um, it, it, you know, it, it can be a little bit less <laughs> yeah. traditional for my liking, but I do believe that no. people have ideas that they want to come and bring to life. And that is, I think an entrepreneur's the not knowing them as an entrepreneur, but that is where it starts that I see a problem to solve and I have an idea and, and how do I do that? What has come easy? <laughs> Drive in a weird way. Um, so when I look back on things that I've done in life, I have never quit. And it wasn't because I never wanted, I'm like, I'm never going to quit. It wasn't something that strong in me. Um, but I started with knee problems early on in soccer. And I just told myself I want to keep playing. And so it probably wasn't the best thing for my body. And five ACLs later, I finished playing. But it, I, you know, once you got there, it was like, here's the setback again. But what it felt like was I've been through this. I know how to navigate it. So it, um, and then I think about from an education. Again, it wasn't traditional. It took me nine and a half years to finish my PhD. I didn't go to school full-time ever in that. I worked full-time and I went to school part-time. And there were, there were years where I wanted to just be like, I'm done. But something in me said, you just have to finish it. If you've come this far, you have to finish it. And so what I see that it is scary as heck sometimes. And in this entrepreneurial world, often people I talk to as well, there's, you know, six to nine months of revenue runway that you're working oh. with. And then you're fighting for your next, um, what's, what's going to happen. And so just this idea that you don't quit. And even when things get hard, you can kind of boohoo for a minute and woe is me. And then you have to like pick yourself back up and, and say, I'm doing this and I'm going to do it until I can't do it anymore. Um, but what that has to, I think, stand beside is you have to be very smart financially and you have to plan for the rainy day. You have to plan for the months of what I would say, um, famine because they will happen and and you're not in control but it is this it's a commitment to stay the course even when you don't want to unless you you know it you realize you've done this bit and it's like this just isn't for me and then I think that's okay I've met a lot of people that said you know I tried this it's just I need more security is usually what I hear um so the I think having what I didn't realize, I never built a network to be able to capitalize on it. I built a network just because I was interested and I went places and um, I tried to talk to people and I was curious, right? I built a network because I was curious. Because of that curiosity, what I found was my network, what, my network was authentic. 
and the people that I had surrounded myself with were never a part of becoming something different or exploiting that network. And so what I've been able to do is lean back on that network and unbeknownst to me, I did instill a trust of that relationship. And I see a lot, even now when I want to grow my network, being mindful of why you want these people around you. And it's not just about friends or connections um, or being an influencer, right? Having so many followers, um, but it's about protecting that network and respecting them. Um, so those are the things, some things that I think that have come easy. I love to write. Um, I, although the more I write and the more exposed I get to amazing writing and I have people edit for me and critique it, the more I realize that I'm not near as good of a writer as I thought it was, but I have passion. And so passion that comes out in writing helps. Um, and sometimes, you know, leveraging your skill sets with what you want to create does really well. Um, if, if you want to excel at something, lean on what you're good at, then in the background, figure out what you're not good at, which leads me to what's been hard. Um, my ex-husband was financial guy, does everything. I, for 10 years, just kind of contributed to household income. But when I was in a partnership, you assume roles and responsibilities, and that was not one of my roles. And so I, I wish I would have spent a lot more time understanding the investment side and the venture capital. And so that's what I'm going to try to figure out now. Um, accounting, right? Like I took an accounting class. I, I took, you know, I do all my own accounting stuff. I've learned more about taxes than I ever have wanted to know, but it feels good. Um, I, I, God bless CPAs, especially this time of the year. But what's, fa what's fascinating to me, and this is where, you know, people find their niche is my, my CPA, we call him Tater, but Tater's like, oh, it's easy. Like this, is, I love this, it's enjoyable. And I just think you are maddening. Um, technology, yeah. Uh, technology, I, I sometimes can't work my own TV. My nine and six year old can figure things out. I have a Tesla, I just found out it does a hundred more things than I ever thought it did. I've almost had it three years, like this kind of stuff. But yet I work with tech companies. So I, I think this is interesting. So having to learn new technology. Um, I'm my own IT person now. Never thought that would happen. Um, I, I've learned a lot about marketing just because I had to, because I can't pay anyone to do it. And so you get really well versed, but there's something about learning it for yourself that's empowering. And so I would almost say, if you have the capacity not to hire out something and not to contract something, try to learn it yourself. Pick and choose things you want to learn because it will make you more relatable and it will make you understand business on a much greater scale than just staying very comfortable with what you know. That's, um, that's great advice. And so when you... Do you think anything has been harder because you were a woman or do you think it would be all the same? No, absolutely. 
And I've written quite a few things. Um, I wrote on International Women's Day with this idea that I, I love that women and I look up to women where to me they lead with grace and this fierceness. It is some, in, in there's just the right emotion. I have been so tired of sitting in boardrooms and in senior living, it is white 55 year old male. I mean, and that white 55 year old male is the most interesting, I will use that word, cohort and click of people that think advice from other people, especially women younger than them that have not been in the industry, the business as long is useless. Um, and there's no need to listen. There is very much a hierarchy and it's starting to change a little bit, but I, you know, as my last job, I, I was told I didn't have the same title, but I was told to act like a peer to the other two men that were in the space. Right? You don't have the title, you're paid substantially less, but you, you're you on the same level, so you seem to act like that. Um, I have watched, I've always had male bosses that may have started where I started. I always know they got paid more. And so, yeah, it has been hard. And then you, you know, you read, it was International Women's Day, and we're like, oh, yeah, you know equity is happening and we're closing the gap. And then you look at the last 20 years and you look at how much of the gap is closed in pay or wage equity. And it's abysmal. Like it's, it's discouraging Sarah coming where from my generation that we still have inequities in pay for the same job that, I think of all the other things, I, I've never really wanted to make excuses for myself. And so I've always tried to say, okay, I'm going to be the most prepared um, of anyone in the room. And, and I will have no, none of that. But when it comes to inequities in pay, that to me is fundamental. I, I don't mind doing more homework, working harder. I don't mind any of those things. But I do mind is, especially in the banking industry, I had a friend say, if you are a female, you will have a title of a bank manager or a VP of the bank. If you are a male, it will be president of the bank. So in the same branches of a same very large well-known banking industry um, that they can make that kind of distinction is it, it's discouraging to me because it is 2023 yeah it it is I but I think what I've learned from that and I always I don't believe going down the route of anger or uber feminism or right. a movement that is nasty will move the needle quicker. I think it brings more attention, but I don't think it's the right. It's like teaching your kids to fight back right? with hands. What I've learned in this as women of how we can empower each other to make sure that if you're going for that job interview, ask for more. If they give you a number, Never say yes first, right? 
that is just this basic principle that as women, we've done this because like, thank you, you hired me for some reason. And really looking at these powerful women who said, no, I'm worth more, right? Yeah. I can have that yeah. mentality as a man. I'm always worth more. I'm not grateful right. that you gave me a right. job. Um, that in, you know, from the application process, I love the research about how men will apply for a job of, if they meet four out of the 10 requirements and say, like, <laughs> I can do this. Women, they're like seven out of 10. Like, I think I'm close. Maybe I should try. Um, and so it, you just go like if you know what you're worth, right? And sometimes knowing what you're worth is telling people no when they're not willing to pay you. And I've instead of I've I've told people no because I thought I was worth more. Did I absolutely need the role and the job? Yeah. Did I need oh. you as a client? Yeah. But I'm not doing it for that. Yeah. And yeah. I always. Yeah. It's usually from men. I haven't had women try to shortchange me, but I have had men just laugh at an hourly rate. <laughs> Correct. Right. And listen to that now, you know, I want to say, is it because you can't charge that? Uh -huh. Does that offend you? Right. Um, and so it's, it's balancing confidence and tenacity in a graceful and elegant way, not that you have to be elegant, but I do think that there is a way to create this space, women, for all of us to, um, to be the biggest cheerleaders and best advocates. And we're getting better. We're supporting each other, but it's, it's human nature not to always like everybody and to have, you know, jealousy when you think, you wanted to do that and someone's doing it. Um, but I mean, just supporting each other. And I've had to remind myself and tell, you know, from the karma sense of if I support women, it's going to come back to me. What does it hurt? Oh. Right? Like praise them, put them on the pedestal, reach out, tell the woman that was great. I've, I've also started reaching out and be like, I've been following you. I don't know what this is worth, but I look up to you. I've asked for people to be my mentor. Um, I've told them I basically stalked them for 10 years. And it's not weird. I find that they're, they're grateful and they're flattered and they never say no. It's not, I'm too busy for you. It's like, yeah, I think there's, I think there's why. And, and I agree with you. I, I respect the women I respect most um, lead with who they are, not not just some who they think they need to be. Yeah. They they are forward and they speak up and they are confident, but they they lead, you know, there's a book about that too, lead like a woman. I mean, truly they they try they stay true to themselves in their in their approach. You know, I always try to like kind of sum up and end with um, what what are some books you love? What are some podcasts you love? What what's on your list of either favorites or on your desk right now? Um, you you said you're a continual learner and you you evidently have your PhD. And I know you talked about big magic, but do you have other 
books that that just have stayed i i say sometimes they're just a book that kind of haunts me I, in the best of terms not <laughs> but just stays in my presence all the time yes and so one of those for me and it's not a business or a leadership book but untamed by glennon doyle and if you kind of just reading her story and this idea of empowering and equity um there's so many nuggets of wisdom there in scenarios that kind of it's just inspiring if i can do this you know the whole premise of the book is we can do hard things there's a lot of hard things that get thrown at us people in general but i think women especially and with that idea of we can do hard things um and it's okay talking about the things that are hard because that's real life. And in life, we are all beautifully broken. That's what makes humanity kind of okay. Um, and I love good to great. You know, just that idea of ever evolving. And just because something is good or could be enough, there's always something else you can do with it. And that's, you know, as a person, as a leader, um, you know, I wish I was more of a podcast person, although I like music so much more. Um, and I, I write like podcasts like this. I, and I never go back and listen to myself because I don't want to hear myself talk. Um, but live young, die fast, right? Send these ideas and these books on vitality and longevity. And the goal in life is not a number of years or to make it to a, a certain age range, but what is the life in those years? And, you know, when everyone's trying to be a hundred, why do we want to, why? Right. Um, you don't have to be a hundred age is not a demarcation of success. If you don't have the ability to do what you want to do. And so anything that I can, I also love demographic studies. There's a guy named Bradley Sherman that I follow. Um, he just writes about, demographics around the world and, and what this aging world looks like. Um, if you think about how, where we were in the fifties prior to suburbia America building out and everyone having their own homes, you know, are we on that path to go back to multi-generational living under one roof? Mm -hmm. And we are, I mean, if you just, if you look at demographics and data, I mean, I read the other day that only 22% of 16-year-olds. Oh, it's it's insanity. Um, yeah, they, they aren't in a hurry to get their driver's license. They aren't in a hurry for that independence. And then just going back and living after college and living there and being okay. And parents wanting kids to come back. And I think, you know, with housing the way it is and financial constraints and I there's a lot of evidence and you know not even speculation but that we will end up back in multi-generational families under one roof and we for me I don't know that in America but I do see such a benefit and so I'm a autobiography reader for sure and a non-fiction reader um but I do um How do you, as a leader, take books and learn from others? And I find sometimes that 
asking those conversations and just, or having those conversations and just being vulnerable um, and being open enough to admit your deficits, right? And try to work on those um, does a little bit more than just reading about how to be better, but it's what's the application, right? But I, continual growth, um, is that no matter what you do, right? Like you don't have to do any, just growth. I wrote the other day that I, I, I hit 44 and I'm done <laughs> growing. I feel like I'm done growing up. Like I've done the family, I've done the education, I've done the career, still doing it, bought a home. And now it's, now it's just growth. I don't have to grow up anymore. I just have to keep growing. Hmm. So good thoughts. Those are really good thoughts, Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. How uh, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can go to my website. It's www.le3solutions.com. Um, reach me there. You can find me on LinkedIn at Sarah Kyle or LE3Solutions. And I am active on both of those and will respond however you get a hold of me. Okay, well... I just want to thank you. Um, you've had some great thoughts, I think, that people will really enjoy and really learn from. And I, I want to just, again, thank you for the work that you're doing, especially um, with the age groups that you've had the opportunity to really get to know and, and help people who are trying to help them. So with that, we'll sign off. And just thank you so much for being on 50% with Marcel Combs. Thank you for having me.